Carolina East Campus 915 service. How you guys doing today? Woo! Man, I don't know about you, but that baptism kind of gave me a little bit of heebie-jeebies. So we're, we're operating from a place of heebie-jeebies. I'm just going to be honest with you. My name is Dan, and I lead student ministries. Yes, I lead student, <laughs> I lead student ministries here with uh, my awesome team, uh, of which uh, Colin, the guy that you just saw get dunked there, is a, is a, is a member. And, man, it's just been such a, a sweet opportunity to get to know him and to lead student ministries with him, my awesome wife. And, and what we do is we just hang out with students from 6th through 12th grade, just kind of have a riot trying to get to understand Jesus and, and learn how to follow him better. So it's a real privilege and honor to be uh, here to speak to, to you today. And we're in a series uh, called Jesus Come and See. And what we're saying is uh, that this is kind of a, a, an invitation to an investigation, right? Come, come, check it out and see, investigate what Jesus is all about. What we've been saying in this series uh, is that, you know, a lot of people come to Jesus with uh, sort of a hand-me-down concept or version of him. So maybe you grew up in kind of like a religious tradition or maybe your parents kind of some told, told you some things about Jesus. Maybe, you know, the media or your friends or whatever have kind of given you like these different concepts or ideas about Jesus. And it's like you kind of have pre-established this idea of what he's about. And maybe that corresponds to, to who he really is and maybe not. But we kind of want to just take a really hard look at who Jesus actually is to investigate who he is and really kind of figure it out. And the way that we're doing that uh, is we're looking at uh, what's called the Gospel of Matthew. And Matthew is a really in interesting uh, work. It's actually a, a kind of eyewitness account, a first century eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. This dude, Matthew, actually knew Jesus personally. He walked around with him. He interacted with him. He observed how he, how he operated. And he wrote down for us like an ancient biography of the life of of Jesus, all right? And so we don't have to kind of just guess about Jesus. We could just look at Matthew and read about what Jesus is. And there's like hundreds of copies of the Gospel of Matthew floating around, like in this room right now. And we have it and we can learn about him. And so we're going to be in Matthew uh, chapter 16. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, we've been on this journey. We're, we're up to 16 now. And so if you want to get there in your Bible or if you want to open up your device and, and uh, you know, blast over to 16, that'd be cool. And if you didn't bring a Bible, that's cool. We actually have some for you in the chairs uh, beneath you there. And so you can find Matthew 16 uh, on page 687 in those black Bibles. And we say this every week. This is really a cool thing that uh, if you don't own a Bible, you can actually take one of those black Bibles and, and make it a gift from us to you. We think it's super duper important that you have a copy of God's word. So please just take that, write your name in it and, uh, you know. Happy Baptism Day, Bible for you, all right? So since we're talking about Jesus, I feel like it might be appropriate to show you a, a really famous painting of Jesus to kind of start get our, getting our minds uh, rolling in that direction. And so here's a painting uh, of Jesus called Head of Christ by an American artist whose name is Warner Salmon, uh, produced in uh, 1940, 1941. And, and what's interesting about this painting is that it's actually the most widely uh, reproduced painting of Jesus in human history. There are over 500 million, since its production in 1940, there have been over like 500 million copies of this produced. So on a lampshade or some maybe in your grandma's den collecting dust somewhere or like at, you know, back in some uh, storeroom at like a thrift store or something, 500 million copies uh, of, this, of this painting. And I think for good reason, right? I mean, like Jesus, pretty handsome dude. I think we would all agree, you know, I'm, I'm willing to say he looks pretty handsome in this painting, you know, kind of got 
beautiful blue eyes kind of gazing longingly into the distance there, just, uh, you know, pursed lips, very kind of serious, almost sort of flirting with a, a mullet there, maybe, he's, think, he's like on the line of mullet time, right? And one really interesting thing that you'll notice about Jesus here is that he, uh, he's like white. He's a white dude, right? And, and the interesting thing about Jesus is, you know, if you've been following or if you know anything about the historical Jesus, he grew up uh, in Galilee in the ancient Middle East. He was, a, he was a Jewish man in first century Galilee, okay, over in the Middle East. And, and to be honest with you, there weren't a, lot of, a whole lot of white dudes hanging out in Galilee in the first century. In fact, I like what uh, pastor and theologian uh, from Texas has to say about white boy Jesus. All right, my man, Matt Chandler, uh, who's a pretty sweet guy we like a lot around here, has this to say about white Jesus. He says, finding a white dude in Galilee in the first century would be like finding Bigfoot riding a unicorn across a rainbow. There's not gonna be one there. And I'm like, I love you, Matt Chandler. All right, but for some reason, right, for some reason, this is the most famous picture of Jesus. 500 million copies of it floating all around on a coffee cup somewhere, you know, at Auntie Sue's house or something, right? And, and it's interesting because it's just like, why did, this, why did this picture become the most famous? It's almost kind of like a fabrication. It's like so, somehow all these different uh, pieces of information or something worked its way to be like, oh, this is, this is what it's got to be. And it kind of results in a, a sort of synthetic, fake, n- not really corresponding to reality, fake version of Jesus, right? This is, a, this is just sort of fake plastic Jesus that doesn't really correspond uh, to, to reality. And the Bible che- teaches that, that Jesus wouldn't have stuck out like this, that he wouldn't have been this beautiful white guy, that he actually would have looked very much like a, a first century Galilean, right? We even know that from uh, the prophet Isaiah who says, man, Jesus had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that, that we should desire him. And honestly, if somebody like that was in first century Galilee, it would be like, who's that guy? Let's all follow him because of his beauty, right? So it doesn't really correspond. What's interesting is that recently there's been a field of science called forensic anthropology that has been developed. And, and what these forensic anthropologists do is they find ancient skulls uh, and remains from different uh, civilizations, and they're able, using uh, computer-generated 3D imaging and mapping, to kind of determine what people from different cultures would look like. And they found remains from first century Galilee, Jewish Semite skulls, and they were able to determine what uh, an average Galilean would look like. And check it out. This is, are you guys ready? Here, here we go. This is it. Bada bing. That's what somebody from the first century Galilee would look like. Now, I'm not saying, you gotta hear me, I'm not, I'm not saying that that's the face of Jesus, right, at all. But what I am saying is that Jesus would have looked a lot more like this guy, Darker skin, kind of a thick curly black hair, a bigger nose, right? Definitely not like white boy surfer Kendall Jesus. This is like, this is a more authentic uh, representation of what Jesus would have looked like. And I think for me, you know, as, as I was studying this week to, to prepare uh, for today's uh, uh, talk, you know, it almost kind of made me a little bit uncomfortable to be like, wow, that's a pretty stark, a pretty stark contrast. And I think as I was thinking about it, I realized that we all honestly... We all have our own like versions of Jesus that we've established in our minds, right? We all have ideas or concepts about how he, I mean, that's what this whole series is about. We, we want to kind of leave our preconceived notions and figure out like who, who Jesus really is. 
And, and, and I think that this, even seeing the contrast between these th- two things kind of illuminates, man, maybe I have some, some preconceived notions about what Jesus is all about that, that don't really correspond to reality. And I think it's important to maybe even just be on the way that he looks to think, man, how do I, how do I actually think about Jesus? How do I think about the way that he operates? How, what is the actual authentic and real Jesus? And how does that, how does that correspond to reality? Not, I don't want to, to just interact with fake synthetic Jesus, but I, I want to make a transition. If I really want to see who Jesus is, I want to make a transition and see who the authentic and living and real Jesus is. So that's what we're going to do uh, with the remainder of our time. And I think a, a helpful way to say it, and, and I really believe this to be true, this is what we're going to be talking about the rest of the day, is that truly seeing Jesus, tr- re- really uh, you know, coming to an awareness of who Jesus actually is, it requires a paradigm shift, a significant paradigm shift from synthetic to authentic, right? And, and again, we all, all of us have been exposed to things that may or may not correspond with the real Jesus. There's some, some amalgam of different components that kind of make up what he may or may not be, but we need to take a, a serious look at that, right? Truly seeing Jesus requires a paradigm shift from synthetic to authentic, okay? And so like I said, we're gonna be blasting off in Matthew 16, and so we're just gonna jump right in. Starting in verse uh, 13, Uh, It says, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do do people say the Son of Man is? So you get a real quick context here. It's interesting. In chapter 14 and chapter 15, two different times, Jesus miraculously heals multitudes of people. Tens of thousands of people are attracted to, to the message that Jesus is bringing. And so they gather around him. He teaches them. He heals multitudes. And he, and he miraculously um, multiplies loaves and, and, and fish and feeds tens of thousands of people. He does that in chapter 14 and in chapter 15. And so we get this picture of Jesus as somebody that really has the capacity, if he wants to at any moment, to just have a huge crew of people that are well-fed and all healed up and ready to go. In fact, uh, in the Gospel of John, another ancient biography of Jesus, uh, we see that the crowds were so hyped about the stuff that he was doing that they wanted to take him by force and make him king. All right, and so this is the picture we get. But then uh, in chapter 16, we just wind up kind of abruptly in Caesarea Philippi which would have been about 25 miles north of where Jesus was doing most of his work uh, in Galilee. Okay, so he's 25 miles north. And Caesarea Philippi is actually named after the Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus. All right, Caesarea, Caesar Augustus. And Philippi is, uh, is uh, the last part of this dude, Herod Philip's name. And Herod Philip was a, a really powerful, influential king of, of a region there. And so there's this highly, even in the name of Caesarea Philippi, this highly politically charged uh, idea that comes to your mind when you even hear Caesarea uh, Philippi. It would be like saying, it would be the equivalent of saying like, oh yeah, I'm over, uh, I'm going to go over to uh, Obama Trumpville or something, right? There's like a a very highly politically charged dynamic in this name, right? And you'd be like, man, I wonder if they built a wall around Caesarea Philippi. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) So yeah, there's, a very, there's, there's a very high, it's highly politically charged. So all I'm trying to say, there's a political element, as, okay, to this name. Emperor King Town, okay? And he asked his disciples, who do, pay, who do people say the Son of Man is? And, and what he's really asking is, man, who do people say I am? Son of Man was just the, the most frequent way that Jesus referred to himself. It's a very uh, a deep 
concept. We don't really, really have a lot of time to get into it today, but Jesus genuinely is, is just asking the question, like, man, here we are in this politically charged place. Who do people say I am? All right, and then his disciples say, well, some say John the Baptist, uh, others say Elijah, and, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And, and basically what his disciples are saying is, dude, everybody, this whole crowd, everybody that sees you and interacts with you knows that you're like some kind of big deal God guy. You're like, you're bringing some kind of message. You're like a God spokesman. You're sort of speaking on behalf of God. You can sort of do miraculous, magical stuff. Everybody, can, it's obvious, all right? And, and these are all just different, different guys who uh, spoke with, uh, high, you know, just highly, highly exciting, uh, powerful speakers and, and people that spoke on behalf of God. And so that's what they say. Everybody can tell that you're like some big deal, all right? But then Jesus, profound question says, but what about you? He has his, his inner, his kind of inner crew, his, his core disciples, right? And he, like I said, he, he's far away from, from the mass and, and from all the different things that are happening. And he asks his, his inner kind of core crew that have really been following him and trying to figure out the authentic Jesus. And he says, what about you guys? Who do you say I am? And honestly, I really think this is the, you know, the most important question that somebody could ask. Who is Jesus ultimately? Like, who is this guy? And I think that's what Matthew is trying to get us to think about as we come and see and investigate him all through, all through the story uh, that he's presenting is, is to kind of start to ask the question, man, who is this guy? How, how could he be doing the things that he's doing? Who is he? Who is Jesus? And then Peter responds to this question in a pretty, a pretty famous way. He said, Simon Peter, who again is one of Jesus' very close followers, Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. And I think uh, it's important to note that when we hear, like in, in, you know, kind of modern Western ears, hear the word Messiah, I think we already have a kind of a notion of what that is. We kind of think about Handel's Messiah, you know, like the Hallelujah Chorus. And we think about like somebody that maybe has a Messiah complex, like I have three jobs and I like, you know, this kind of thing, right? Messiah complex. But Messiah back in this day has a very, very specific meaning. And so when Peter says Messiah, in Jewish thought, the Messiah, the Messiah would be the king of the Jews. And again, you have to remember, they're in Caesarea Philippi, they're in Emperor King Town. Jerusalem and, and the surrounding environment is occupied by the Empire of Rome. And so they're in this highly politically charged moment. And, and the Messiah would be the king of the Jews. And these dudes are all Jewish. A political leader who would defeat their enemies and bring in a golden era of peace and prosperity. All right. And so when, when Jesus says, Who do you say that I am? Peter's like the Messiah. And Jesus is like, okay, cool. You're, 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 tracking down the right, uh, you're tracking down the right rabbit hole here. And then he says, the son of the living God. You're the Messiah, the true king, the, the, the liberator, the redeemer. And you're the son of the living God. I think it's uh, really, really important to, to, to find out this, this, this detail about uh, Caesarea Philippi, something I didn't mention before, but, but this, um, this town was also historically known for uh, the worship of a god by the name of Pan, a pagan god named Pan. And Pan, weird, kind of a weird god. He had like a goat, he was goat-faced and he played the flute, kind of goat-faced goat flute-playing god. And the way that people worshiped this pagan god Pan was they would sacrifice goats and throw them into this cave called the Gates of Hades. 
And Hades is the realm, the realm of death, or it's like the underworld, all right? And so when Peter says, dude, you're the son of the, you're the Messiah, there's this political element, we're incestory of Philippi, and you're also the son of the living God, it, it might, it, it would be in stark contrast to, to the reality that, man, Caesarea Philippi is known for, for containing the gates of Hades, the realm of death. And so, again, both uh, politically and in a spir- at a spiritual level, this is like a serious thing that Peter is saying. And then Jesus replied to this, to this profound statement, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And so Jesus really is basically just saying, Gold star, Peter, you got it 100% right. Your, your thoughts are in perfect alignment with divine, eternal reality. I am the Messiah. I am the son of the living God. I'm the true king. So it's like, ding, A plus, all right? And I tell you, Jesus goes on and he says, and I tell you that you are Peter. You are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And there's a couple, I mean, this whole passage is so packed with, with really cool information. But just to note quickly, Peter actually, Peter's name actually sounds like the, the word for rock. And so he's saying, it's like a wordplay, like, you're right, Peter. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. And church wasn't just a building. It was actually a community of people that love and follow God. And he's like, yeah, Peter, what you just said is right. And I'm going to build this, this living and active community. And then he says, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus is saying that at the absolute deepest and most eternal level, that even death cannot conquer what what is going to be accomplished in the life uh, of Jesus in the way that he is the Messiah, all right? And so even death, death is going to be swallowed up into the living community of what Jesus is going to do as the true, as the true Messiah, all right? It's a very, very, very uh, charged moment where he has these disciples far away from everything else that's happening and he talks to them about, about these really important, big, heavy things. And so the Bible goes on to, to say that at this moment, Jesus kind of quiets his disciples down and he says, look, I want you guys to keep this a secret. All right, don't, don't tell anybody that's for you to know for right now. We're just gonna keep it a secret. And, and I think at this moment, as I was you know, kind of trying to really figure out what, what might've been going on in the disciples' minds, is that, man, they're probably thinking to themselves, even observing the things that Jesus has done previously, like, man, he's able to feed multitudes of people. He's able to heal them. And at any moment, like amass tens of thousands of people to basically like hang on his every word. We're here in Emperor Kingtown. He says that he's gonna be the true king and, 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 that, and that that's what's gonna happen. Even death itself isn't gonna take over. Like we're gonna conquer and, and he's gonna be the king. I think that the, the disciples at this moment in Caesarea Philippi are like, man, the uprising is about to happen. All right, uh, Jerusalem is occupied by Rome. We're gonna go, are we gonna do it? Like, are we about to take over? Like, is this about to, we're doing it. Like, we're the, we're the revolution, right? And so right after this, this is, you know, they have this concept in their mind. Right after this, uh, just in a, in a couple verses, it says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. And they're like, right on, we must go to Jerusalem. We're gonna take over, right? We're, yeah, this is what we do. We're gonna go to Jerusalem. We must go to Jerusalem, to Roman-occupied Jerusalem. And then a really interesting paradigm shift occurs in the next uh, part of this verse. And he says, I must go to Jerusalem and suffer 
and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on, and on the third day be raised to life. And I think in a very significant way, this differs from what they would have established in their minds when they're thinking about Messiah, when they're thinking about this political uprising or, or this military coup or something that's about to happen. And then he says to him, yeah, we gotta go. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get beat up and then killed and die. I'm gonna allow myself to be subject to death, which was the very thing I said was not going to be able to stop what we were going to do as the true king, right? And I think for them, this, this paradigm would have been so, um, it, it, would have, it would have been such a dramatic shift and it would have been so arresting to them and confusing to hear that he, if he is the true Messiah, he shouldn't suffer. He should be crowned and enthroned as, as this majestic royal hotshot, right? Well, he shouldn't be killed. That doesn't make sense at all. Like it totally throws them for a loop. In fact, so much I think that maybe they had a little bit of trouble here in the last part of this sentence and on the third day be raised to life. And so Peter, you know, kind of speaking as a spokesperson for, for the crew, responds in a, pretty, in a pretty harsh way. And he has this to say, and Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And, and as I was studying, I found out, like, in the original language that this was written, this is, like, extremely harsh language. Like, Peter is getting up in Jesus' grill, and he's like, absolutely not. That is not how it's going to go down, Messiah. Right, which is like a pretty, it's pretty trippy to go from saying somebody like is the true king to like, no, you, you don't know what you're talking about, right? And he rebukes him. And then uh, Jesus, respond, Jesus responds to Peter. And Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human, but merely human concerns. Right. And now what, what Jesus is not saying is that Peter is Satan or is possessed by Satan, right? But, but what he is saying is that, that Peter's opposition to the cross, what Jesus is ultimately going to do to the cross, Peter's opposition to that put him and Jesus in this like adversarial relationship where it's like, dude, you don't understand what I really came to do, right? I came to, to suffer and to die for my people. And he says, get behind me. You're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns, right? And so as we look at Peter, I think in, in, in some pretty significant ways, we could almost kind of think, man, he, he jumps from, from these two extremes to like being blessed to being called Satan. Even, um, you know, in verses 17 uh, through 18, we have a really uh, very, very, very clear like affirmation from Jesus that Peter's like on the right track, right? He calls him blessed. He's like, Peter, you're blessed. You're the rock upon which I will build my church. The, the gates of Hades won't overcome it. And then he says that what you just said about me as the true Messiah wasn't revealed by flesh and blood, but by my father who is in heaven, right? Like pretty totally gold star coming from Jesus. But then you just go five verses forward to verse 23 and we have a completely different picture of the way that Jesus talks about Peter. He calls him Satan. <laughs> he goes from blessed to Satan in five verses. And then he goes from being a rock that would be like kind of the foundation for what Jesus is gonna do to a stumbling block, to a rock that you trip over and like yell at. And he says the exact opposite. He says, you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns, right? And Jesus, 
isn't messing around. He's like really getting in Peter's, in Peter's face about this. Like, dude, you don't know what you're talking about, man. You're, you're, you're incorrect, right? And I think it's really important to note that, that the reason why this happens, the reason why Jesus can so intensely t- turn and say, no, Peter, that is absolutely not it, is because the way that Peter is interacting with Jesus and the thoughts of Jesus the, the, the picture and the idea that Peter has in his mind of who Jesus is, is a synthetic, is, is a synthetic Jesus. It's not, it's not the real Jesus. And he thinks, no, you have to take over. You have to be this conquering, intense, victorious, violent military leader. We're going to get a bunch of people. We're going to go down to Jerusalem and take over. That's, not, that's, that's the version that I have of you. And I need you, uh, and the way that I think about you, the way that I've been taught about you, everything, the way that the, the religion that I've been exposed to, the, the thoughts that I've heard, the, 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 you know, the, the things that I've seen, the things that I've heard, the way that people talk about you, the way that I think about you, this, this, this thing that you're saying that you're gonna die doesn't, doesn't fit. I want you to be beautiful, uh, kind of stoic, conquering warrior, political figure, right? But like we said in Isaiah, Jesus didn't come in beauty Right? It's that he has no beauty or royal political majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Right? This is not the real Jesus, Peter. This, this isn't the real Jesus. Isaiah goes on to say he was pierced. He, he, <laughs> he was pierced for our transgressions. And he was crushed for our iniquities. That's the real, that's the real Jesus. The real authentic Jesus was pierced and was crushed. And then it says he, his punishment, all right, the punishment that brought us peace, that brought us ultimate peace, not just a temporary political peace uh, in a little part of the world uh, in, in ancient uh, Galilee and Jerusalem, but the, the punishment that brought humanity peace was on him. The punishment that brought us peace was on him and by his wounds, we are healed, right? And so there's a very, very stark contrast and I think it's extremely important to see, to see, the, to, to see the distinction there. Like, it, it, what, what happens is when, when you allow a false and synthetic idea of who Jesus is to inform the way that you interact with and think about him, you're, you're going to miss out on, what the big, on the biggest deal ever, that he, was, that he was crushed for our transgression and that by his wounds we are healed. And I think that this is all... You know, very interesting. I get hyped up about Bible stuff, and so I find this to be a very fascinating thing to talk about. But I think the big question becomes, so what? Like, okay, that's, that's fascinating, and Caesarea Philippi was a political thing, and uh, these guys were confused about stuff, but who cares? Like, so what? What does that have to do? Like, what does that have to do with me, and how does that affect me in, in uh, 2019 in Medina, right? And I think what's so cool, so awesome about Jesus is that he anticipates in this moment that, that, man, maybe, maybe the other people that are around hearing this tension between me, uh, me and Peter need, need to be taught what this all means and what this has to do with my life. And so Jesus, in this moment, uses this tension and, and this, paradigm, this paradigm tension as like a teachable moment because he turns to, his, to, to the other disciples. The very next verse, he says, Peter, get behind me. Uh, you, you, you're not thinking correctly. And then next verse, Jesus said to his disciples, dude, whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to truly follow me and understand who I am and what I'm about, 
must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me, right? What Jesus does not say is whoever wants to be my disciple must clean themselves up, have perfect skin and a mullet and live some kind of plastic life where they just do a checklist of good stuff. Whoever wants to follow me must be perfect in all these ways. He says, no, you gotta deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. You have to acknowledge that there's something, there's something more than just the construct of reality that I have created based on these preconceived notions of you. You need to, you need to be willing to, to go to, to a place that might be uncomfortable, to take up your cross and to, to embrace what Jesus uh, kind of shows us about how to, how to live, to deny yourself, to take up your cross and to follow me. And then he says, for whoever wants to save their life, whoever actually really values their life and sees that, man, there, there's some, this, why, why am I here? What, what is the purpose of life? Why am I here? Why is there anything rather than nothing? I really wanna know. I, I'm a human being and my life has value. What does this mean? Whoever wants to truly discover that, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. And I think that um, in the culture that we live in right now where we so highly value like our individual identity and, and, and we just put this really high, uh, kind of high status on just like the, the me, right? I think when we hear whoever loses their life will, will find it, we're like, so you're telling me I have to give up my identity to become a Christian? Like to, so following Jesus means I have to like let go of who I am, right? And, and I'm here to tell you that this, this does not mean, what Jesus is not saying is that you have to give up your identity or that you have to like forego being the person that you were created to be. This means to shed, to shed what is hindering you from discovering your true identity, Right? Jesus made all of you, God created humanity in each of us individually to, to have an identity that is found in him. And, and the more we discover who God is and the more that we kind of flee from the things that interfere with our capacity to understand who he is and how he made us, man, we get to truly discover our lives. But you can't, you can't do that by trying to fabricate it on your own or by trying to fabricate some version of Jesus and some version of your life that is not in correspondence with uh, with who he is and what he's about, right? And the way that this happens, the way that losing one's life in order to find it occurs is, uh, is found in what's called the gospel. The gospel is the way that you lose your life in order to find it in the person of Jesus. And so I wanna take a few minutes just to talk to you about what, what the gospel is and how this corresponds to what Jesus is saying here and the reason why he had to go to, to Jerusalem to suffer and die, all right? This is the gospel. That's just a fancy word for good news. The gospel is the good news of who Jesus is, what he's about, and it's the most important and profound ultimate reality that anybody could ever hear about. It is, it is the beauty into which angels long to look. This is the gospel, that at the absolute core and center of reality, there is a God. There is a real God, and he is love. God exists as love. He has existed eternally, and he so desperately wanted to share his love and to communicate his love that he created humanity. The reason why anything exists, the reason why there is physical reality is because God wanted there to be a place for human beings to dwell so that he could shower his love and his affection on them. God is love. He created you to have a relationship with him and with each other and to experience his love. That's why you exist. He created you because he loves you. He loves you because he created you. You are an object of God's love. 
But the Bible goes on to teach that even though that's a really sweet deal, that all of us have sinned. And sin basically is just determining good and evil on your own. It's saying, you know what? Even though that's cool that you gave me the opportunity to have a relationship with you, I kind of want to just do my own thing. I, I define good and evil on my own, and then I live my life based on that definition. Right? And the Bible says that all of us are guilty of that, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And, and the bummer about that is that the wages of sin... The, the, what occurs as a consequence of sin is separation from God because God is perfect. He, he can only operate and interact in perfection. And because sin is, is not perfection, uh, death, sin and, and death are the result and separation from God. There's a fracture in the relationship between God and man, which is a pretty big bummer. Biggest bummer ever, actually, right? And it's a, the Bible teaches that all have sinned. So everybody on earth is condemned to a life separated from God just by virtue of their humanity, which seems like a kind of rough deal. And it would be a rough deal if Jesus didn't come into the picture. And so the Bible teaches that Jesus himself is God and that though he existed in the form of God, he did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He emptied himself and he came to earth and he took the humble position of a slave. He took on flesh. He dwelt among us. The eternal God of the universe, the eternal God existing as love, took on flesh, came to the earth to dwell among us. And he lived a perfect life, a perfect life that we were created and designed to live, but that none of us could because sin has affected us, right? Sin has infected the way that we operate and function. Jesus lived a perfect life, the life that we couldn't possibly live, and then he died a, a, a criminal's death on a cross, a, a death that we deserve to die because of our sin and our separation from God. God is love, all have sinned, and Jesus, Jesus saves. His death on a cross, is the pay, he pays the penalty for our sin. John 3, 16 and 17, one of my favorite passages ever, very, very famous passage, says it like this, that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. And God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And that occurs. And we saw a young man today celebrate that that is what occurs. And it's very powerful, right? And all that you need to do, all that you need to do to embrace this profound truth, this most important truth than anybody could ever think about is to put your faith in Christ, to follow him, to, to confess and to recognize, yeah, I can see in my life that I've tried to define good and evil on my own. I've tried to do my own thing. I recognize that and, and, I, and I embrace the totally free forgiveness and grace of Jesus. I believe that you died to save me and I accept your forgiveness. I wanna follow you. And then for the rest of your life, you get to discover what it looks like to engage with more and more of this profound, liberating truth that Jesus died to save you. We say it like this at Medina East, and I think it's really helpful. It says, uh, you're more messed up than you think, right? I'm more messed up than I think. And I'll tell you guys what, I'm gonna be real honest with you. I think I'm pretty, I think I'm pretty messed up. You know, I'm aware of my impatience and my arrogance and my anger and my pride. You know, I'm aware but man, the clearest I can think about all of those things don't even get all the way down to the root of how jacked up I really am. I'm more messed up than I think. 
and you're more messed up than you think. In your life, you're more messed up than you think, right? But you're more accepted. You're more accepted than you can imagine. You're more loved and accepted than you can imagine. And the proof that you are more loved and accepted than you can imagine is in the person of Jesus and in his work on the cross and in his resurrection. He proves that he loves you more than you can even fathom by his death on a cross. And so what happens is, man, in, in, in all of our minds and all of our lives, we think, you know, it's very easy to think, well, that sounds intriguing. And if Dan, what you're telling me is that there is an unlimited perfect God who wants to embrace me in relationship, that sounds pretty sweet. But you know, Dan, you, you don't really know the, decision, the bad decisions that I've made recently. You, you don't really know the relational shrapnel and the, you know, the addiction and the pain and the stupid things that I've done. I'm, you know, I'm like stumbling around hungover and confused and break, you know, half broken up with somebody and cheating and whatever. You don't know all the nonsense that, I, that I'm dealing with. And what I'm here to tell you is that Jesus wants you right now. He doesn't want you to clean yourself up. He doesn't want you to figure out how to interact with some synthetic version of him in order to, to, to get to him. He came and took on flesh. And the Bible teaches he who was without sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. And you can embrace the free, the free gift of God's grace. You don't have to climb some kind of religious synthetic Jesus ladder to get up to him, right? It's by grace that you've been saved through faith, not by works so that nobody can boast. You have a free offer, all right? And so that's what the gospel is. And I, I would challenge you, if you're kind of newer to churchy stuff or if you've, you know, you've got some kind of concepts about God, Jesus, Bible stuff, and maybe you're trying to figure it out, I would ask you to really engage with, with these words on the screen because this is the most important thing that you could be thinking about ever. It's the, it's the biggest deal that there is. So please just consider that and think about that. I'm going to invite the band up uh, at this time. And as they get kind of tuned up and, and settle in, I just want to ask you guys one question, all right? Um, and the question is, how do you view Jesus? How do you, how do you actually really view him? And what, what, do you think, what do you think he's capable of in your life, really? Because if you're interacting with, with a Jesus that is just some weird combination of different elements that don't really relate to what's true, if you just interact with synthetic Jesus, you're never going to be able to discover what it truly means to be alive, what it truly means to have joy. I don't know if you guys felt this, but when Colin was talking, man, I, I, was, I was sensing real joy and real... Yeah, I mean, he, he obviously is a young man that is coming to a deeper awareness of what life is all about. And you can see that in his, uh, in his emotion. And, and that is what people who have really embraced the, the authentic Jesus experience. There's a lot of people in this building, I'm looking around, there's a lot of people I know here that have experienced the authentic Jesus. And it is so much more liberating and exciting and powerful and beautiful than, than, um, than synthetic Jesus. So I would ask you to consider, what do you think he's capable of? And if you're in this room and you follow Jesus, I would ask you to kind of you know, search your heart and think, man, what are the ways that I still kind of interact with uh, synthetic Jesus? What are the ways that I think, oh man, I gotta go through this kind of pre-crafted routine. I gotta kind of keep myself cleaned up. You know, Oh, I did some bad stuff. I can't pray for a couple days because Jesus doesn't wanna talk to me or something like that you know, or whatever. Or like, oh boy, I got, Jesus is gonna be really bummed if I don't do this good stuff. Oh boy, you know, that's, that's, that's not authentic Jesus. That's synthetic Jesus. And so I would just ask you to consider for the people in this room that follow Christ, the ways in which you, you interact with and think about him. But honestly, for the, this is my heart always. 
for the person in this room that doesn't follow Jesus, if you're just investigating, I would ask you to consider, man, is it possible that there is a God of love, an absolute real God of love who sent his one and only son to be my savior, to be my friend, and that I don't have to do anything. I don't have to climb any kind of nonsense religious ladder. I don't have to become some kind of religious robot or, or like take some kind of religious brainwash pill, but I can just be who I am. I can be, I can be liberated into the true identity that I was created to have and, and interact with him. And so I would ask you to, to genuinely consider that. Is it possible that this is true? Because I'm here to tell you emphatically that it is true. There is a real God of love and he loves you, he created you, he wants to have a relationship with you. And the best decision you could ever make is to follow him, to follow the authentic Jesus, the one that didn't just want you to, to get cleaned up and get, get everything all nitpickety perfect, the, the Jesus who came and took on flesh to die to save you. So please consider that uh, as we worship. And we love you guys a lot. I'm gonna pray. Yeah, Father, you're the total king of the universe. And uh, you're not fake and you're not... Um, you don't fit into some like pre-crafted idea or synthetic version of, of what we want you to be, Lord. You're the, the true living God. And I'm just asking that the gospel, Father, the good news of who you are and that you had to go to Jerusalem. You are the true Messiah, the true King, and that your kingdom is an eternal kingdom, not just a temporary, a temporary takeover, but an eternal kingdom. And we can participate in that kingdom if we embrace the authentic Jesus. And I'm just asking that for somebody in this room that maybe is trying to figure it out, you know, maybe wrestling with some things that they've done in their past or just trying to figure it out or whatever, Father, that you would illuminate uh, to them the, the value and the beauty of really interacting with you and embracing the true Jesus because you poured everything out for us. You didn't come to make us feel lousy uh, about something and to, and to like make some kind of checklist. You came to, to die to save us and to embrace us. And so I just ask that the truth of that statement resonates deeply into the heart, into the minds of the people in this room. Just praise your name for being who you are. You're the king. Amen.